This episode is brought to you by Philips. Did you catch the defined PCI results at ACC? The defined PCI results support the value of using IFR guidance available only from Philips. IFR co-registration can help you decide not just whether to treat, but where to treat. Learn more about the defined PCI results at tctmd.com backslash defined PCI. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for March 2019. This is the podcast where I look back at some of the top cardiology stories of the past month written by the TCTMD news team. Heart Sounds gives you the rare chance to listen in on some of the audio our reporters use to pull together their print stories. March is always extraordinarily busy since both the CRT and ACC meetings fall to this month. For the first time, we also had a reporter on the ground at the European Heart Rhythm Association meeting in Lisbon. But complicating an already hectic month were some unexpected announcements from the U.S. FDA. On March 22nd, the U.S. regulator approved the Optimizer Smart Implantable Pulse Generator for heart failure. March 20th, the agency announced that it would be accepting a certain level of nitrosamine toxins in Losartan products, this after months of warnings about the potential cancer risks in tainted ARBs. March 15th, when I was literally on the plane to New Orleans for ACC, the FDA announced that its own analysis of paclitaxel-based PAD devices pointed to a higher rate of deaths, warranting a move away from these products until safety can be unequivocally established. One day earlier, we learned that the FDA had granted the MitraClip an extended indication based on COAPT, allowing its use in patients with functional MR. Those news tidbits alone would make for an eventful news month for the TCTMD team, but as I said, we had a number of meetings to contend with as well. Today I'm going to focus primarily on some of the big news out of ACC this year. Let's get started. Two of the most hotly anticipated studies of this year's ACC meeting were the low-risk TAVR trials. One was Partner 3, sponsored by Edwards Life Sciences, testing the Sapien 3 balloon expandable valve versus surgery in patients at low risk for a surgical valve replacement. The other, of course, was the low-risk TAVR trial sponsored by Medtronic, pitting the core valve Evolute-R and Evolute-Pro self-expanding devices against surgery in a similar low-risk population. The release of these results ended up happening one day earlier than scheduled, following an embargo break by Reuters, which added an extra layer of drama to our coverage. TCTMD's Michael Reardon managed to pull together a complex story lickety-split based on the simultaneous publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, then scrambled to get some thoughtful reaction from folks in the field. Because of course the devil is in the details. These trials had slightly different primary endpoints and different follow-up periods. The Evolute low-risk trial presented by Michael Reardon of Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center found that the 24-month incidence of death or disabling stroke was similar in the TAVR and surgical arms, meeting the definition of statistical non-inferiority, but not superiority. The Partner 3 trial, however, exceeded non-inferiority expectations. Investigators led by Martin Leon of New York Presbyterian and Columbia University along with Michael Mack of Baylor Scott & White Health in Dallas, showed that treatment with the Sapien 3 was in fact superior to surgery for the prevention of stroke, death, and rehospitalization at one year, the study's primary endpoint. 
As one observer pointed out, people sifting through these results will pick and choose from the secondary endpoints that are important to their practice, but the overall message was clear to pretty much everyone who spoke with Mike for his story. Taver now moves into the dominant position over Saver, they said, in the majority of patients. Questions of durability remain, of course, but these are true for a number of surgical devices on the market as well, something Reardon pointed out. Mike spoke with Leon shortly after the embargo break. You can hear the hum of the press room lights in the background of this clip. Here's part of their conversation, which puts the patient at the center of the decision-making. If you're a patient, if you go to this from a patient perspective, the patient goes to the hospital the same day. He has a 65% chance of not even having general anesthesia. He often is not even going to be taken from the procedure room to the ICU. They often go straight to the floor. The procedure itself takes less than an hour. They're in the hospital usually in the range of two to three days. 96% of the time, they were discharged either to home or self-care, which is dramatic. Mm -hmm. And then in the first 30 days, they have an almost complete recovery to normal functional status. And in the first year, they have only a 1% chance of having either mortality or a significant slash disabling stroke. That's very powerful. Immediately after the presentation of the low-risk TAVR trials were two late-breaking analyses derived from the COAP study of the mitroclip in patients with advanced heart failure and severe or moderate-to-severe functional mitral regurgitation. As you may recall, I myself covered the original COAPT presentation and simultaneous publication during the TCT meeting last year. Here at ACC, we got a peek at some of the echocardiographic findings in the trial, as well as a pre-specified quality of life analysis. The echo findings are important, said presenter Federico Ash of the MedStar Health Research Institute in Washington, because this analysis actually failed to pinpoint any echocardiographic features that would identify a patient who wouldn't benefit from mitroclip. So long as patients being considered for this therapy meet the criteria used in the COAP trial, and now approved by the FDA, they will have the same likelihood of benefit demonstrated in this trial. The second COAPT analysis presented at ACC, looking at health status, was even more important than the more technical study, some said in New Orleans. That's because for patients, particularly elderly, frail patients like those studied in COAPT, how they feel typically matters more than how long they live, said presenter Suzanne Arnold of St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City. On the basis of two health status questionnaires used in this trial, Co-apt patients felt significantly better following mitroclip than they did following optical medical management. And since these health status findings tracked with the main trial results and were durable out to two years, Arnold is inclined to believe that they are real and not a placebo effect in this unblinded study. Janet Wyman was the press conference discussant for the co-apt analyses following their main tent presentation. Here's her summary. One of the things that I find really impressive about actually both of these trials in, in functional and severe MR, these people live long, uncomfortable lives. And these two studies both take a look at not just how well do we fix or address the valve problem, but more importantly, which is really what's most important to the patients is, are they feeling better? Can they live a life where they can breathe? 
Can they interact with their family? Can they do the things that they find enjoyment? And um, thank you, um, Dr. Arnold, because this is one of the areas that I think um, when we talk to patients, it's not that they just want to live longer. They want to live better. And there's a conscious effort um, in this study um, to take a look at how are we impacting um, not just in the 30 days or the one year after, but looking for a longer period of time, is this going to be a durable change? At a number of meetings in recent years, we've seen trials grappling with how to manage the burgeoning population of patients with atrial fibrillation and ACS or undergoing PCI. The Augustus trial, presented at ACC by Renato Lopez of Duke Clinical Research Institute, is the latest contender in this space, enrolling over 4,600 patients in 33 countries. Augustus had a unique 2x2 factorial design, randomizing AFib patients taking a P2Y12 inhibitor to receive a Pixaban or a vitamin K antagonist and to aspirin or placebo for six months. As Lopez revealed in his late-breaking presentation, six-month rates of major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding, the primary outcome, was significantly less common with a Pixaban than with a vitamin K antagonist. Aspirin use, on the other hand, used on top of that P2Y12 inhibitor, resulted in a higher bleeding rate compared with placebo. Compared with the patients assigned to a vitamin K antagonist, those in the apixaban group were less likely to die or be hospitalized, and importantly, there was no price in terms of ischemic events between these two study arms, although strokes were lower in the apixaban-treated patients. For the aspirin-placebo comparison, the rate of death or rehospitalization and the rate of ischemic events were both similar between groups. TCTMD's Caitlin Cox covered Augustus for TCTMD, I hope you'll read her full coverage. For now, here's part of her interview with Usman Baber from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, who commented on the results for her story. It adds another, you know, piece of evidence, and it's largely consistent with, you know, the, I think, the paradigm that's evolving, namely in most patients, um, or the vast majority of patients who um, have uh, a need for both dual antiplatelet therapy in anticoagulation, the default strategy should be the combination of a novel oral um, anticoagulant um, with a background therapy of, uh, of clopidogrel. I think that's the paradigm that's been consistently seen in you know, Pioneer, Redul, um, and now we're seeing it again with Apixaban. So the findings of lower bleeding risk weren't you know, terribly surprising. I think it was sort of expected. I think what the study does add are a couple of, uh, at least, uh, you know, a couple of new insights. The most relevant is the separate comparison of aspirin versus placebo and, you know, NOAC versus vitamin K. And in that context, I, um, it was interesting to me to see that the reduction in bleeding actually was greater in absolute terms with the aspirin comparison. Huh, yeah. So if you so actually aspirin the, the withdrawal of aspirin produced a larger reduction in bleeding in absolute terms than did the comparison between um, a pixaban and, and vitamin K antagonists and we did not know that before. Um, so I think that was a very, you know, useful insight. Um, I also if you look at when they plotted all four kind of groups and together mm -hmm. you see that the withdrawal of aspirin and the transition to the novel or anticoagulant actually exert a synergistic effect
Augustus joins a long line of recent studies that support the move away from aspirin in a range of scenarios. ACC offered several more. Two of these were studies challenging the role of aspirin in dual antiplatelet therapy following DES implantation. Yael Maxwell covered the STOP-DAPT-2 and SMART-CHOICE late-breaking clinical trials at ACC. STOP-DAPT-2, presented by Hirotoshi Watanabe of Kyoto University in Japan, showed that clopidogrel monotherapy following one month of DAPT was superior to 12 months of DAPT for a primary endpoint of net adverse CV events. A secondary endpoint addressing bleeds also favored the clopidogrel monotherapy group. Then there was Smart Choice, presented by Ju Yong Han of the Samsung Medical Center in Seoul, Korea. This was slightly different but had the same idea at its core. Smart Choice randomized patients to three months of DAPT, followed by clopidogrel monotherapy out to 12 months, or to a dual antiplatelet strategy for the entire 12 months. In this trial, the primary endpoint of all-cause death, MI or stroke, was no different between groups but BARC 2-5 bleeding was significantly greater among the patients randomized to 12 months of DAPT. Claire Duvernoy of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor discussed both trials in a press conference following their release. Here's her, in a nutshell, response to these two studies. This trial, along with the trial that we just heard um, presented or summarized just before, are really going to change what we do in terms of changing the paradigm from how soon can you stop the P2Y12 inhibitor to how soon can you stop the aspirin. Um, and that's a big shift in what we do. Um, the other take-home message that I had looking at this trial and the one before it was that second-generation stents are awesome and that they're so much more forgiving than the first-generation stents where we had these rates of subacute stent thrombosis that were not insignificant um, and that scared all of us into continuing dual antiplatelet therapy for extended periods of time. That doesn't seem to be necessary but changing what we give as monotherapy does seem to be the important point here. The dire prognosis of people found comatose following a cardiac arrest has posed a challenge to hospitals trying to improve rates of survival with full neurological recovery. And while an early invasive strategy has moved the needle for patients found to have suffered an ST elevation MI, it's never been clear that those same benefits extend to cardiac arrest patients with no signs of STEMI. Now, a relatively small trial from the Netherlands has offered some answers. Presented at ACC 2019, by Jorrit Lemkis of Amsterdam University Medical Center, the COACT trial, that's COACT with a C, randomized these non-STEMI cardiac arrest patients to early or delayed angiography following successful resuscitation. At 90 days, survival was similar between the two groups, hovering at around 65%, which Lemkis acknowledged was higher than expected. PCI was subsequently performed in one-third of the immediate group and in 24% of the delayed angiography group. Laura McEwen covered the COACT results for TCTMD, and you'll have to check out her full story to get the details. Meanwhile, Quinn Capers of Ohio State University in Columbus was the discussant for this study during an ACC press conference. In this clip I'm going to play for you, you'll get his reaction to the study, which I think will resonate with a lot of cardiologists on call around the clock. But Capers also puts a question to Lemkis to get at a nagging issue. Namely, is there anything more that could be done to identify the small proportion of non-STEMI patients who might still benefit from an early invasive strategy? 
I'll include a longer clip here so you can get a sense of the to and fro on this complex topic. This is so important for those of us in practice because when we do arrive uh, at uh, midnight, one, two, three in the morning, the adrenaline is flowing and we want to do the very best we can to, to save a life. But this uh, really does give us some, uh, some very interesting information to help guide those decisions. I was really intrigued by your uh, finding of the number of, even though there are limitations with angiography saying what is the culprit vessel, the number of active or culprit lesions uh, was something like, it was almost 10% uh, in, each, in each group, is that right? We found acute uh, Unstable lesions in 15%, but found uh, acute thrombotic occlusions, the ones you really want to treat with PCI, in only 5% of patients. As some of the other commentators brought out, you would like to, if you could, try to find out who are those people. So we're not saying from this trial to walk away from all of these patients. And um, uh, you had some data that those over 70, those with a history of coronary artery disease, uh, might be more likely to be those with those... Uh, active lesions. Well, yeah, more, more likely to benefit over with early invasive strategies. Do you have any thoughts, and you already commented on the fact that you're, because of your trial size, uh, you're not able to come up with a scorecard, but uh, as more data comes out, what, what are your thoughts? Do you have some ideas about things we can use at the bedside that uh, might lead us to say, well, it, it, it's worth it uh, in this case because this it, might really be I think it's going to be difficult. I, uh, we're, we're looking at uh, the EKG of these the EKGs of these people, uh, but if you look at uh, the patients with the real uh, thrombotic occluded arteries, the majority of cases are the circumflex. And those are, of course, uh, known for their uh, blind spot on the EKG with respect to ST segment elevation. So I don't know if the, if the EKG is really going to help us. There's always uh, people who say, well, you have to do an ultrasound on, on these patients. But then again, if you have one-third of patients who have a CTO, you're going to end up with patients who have uh, abnormal ultrasound. They're going to have wall motion. So I think it's going to be pretty difficult to, uh, to identify uh, the group that might, uh, might benefit from an early invasive strategy. Some of you will have noticed that the Crackerjack TCTMD team at ACC was down by one. That's because Todd Neal, who surely would have taken in more of the St. Paddy's Day celebrations than I myself was up for, wasn't with us this year. Instead, Todd was tackling the European Heart Rhythm Association Conference in Lisbon. Todd filed stories on a wide range of topics from EHRA, including several studies looking at different aspects of catheter ablation for AFib, as well as a number of new NOAC analyses. One surprising study raised concerns about a link between high-dose nifedipine and cardiac arrest. Another fascinating presentation hinted that new-onset atrial fibrillation might be triggered by solar storms occurring in outer space. One study in particular might be practice-changing in the wake of EHRA. This was a Dutch study known as RACE-7 AQUAS, suggesting that patients presenting to the emergency room with new symptomatic AFib do not necessarily need to undergo immediate cardioversion, something that is common practice today. As Harry Kreins of the Maastricht University Medical Center reported in Lisbon, the wait-and-see strategy was associated with more spontaneous conversions to sinus rhythm, less need for acute cardioversions, and shorter overall time spent in the emergency room without safety concerns or detriments to quality of life. Todd caught up with Roy Boehner of Israel's Sheba Medical Center, who was the discussant for the trial after the session had wrapped up in the main arena. I had to laugh when Todd sent me this audio clip because the jazz music in the background actually makes it sound as if Todd might have been with us in New Orleans after all. 
Hopefully the saxophone isn't too distracting here. Because of the background noise, I'll play you just a short clip from Boehner, who points out that cardioversion is stressful for patients. This trial might allow for more choice. I believe that some of the patients will not like the, the issue of not being treated immediately for the disorders and being discharged and followed up the next day. But I would say that a great proportion of patients will consider this kind of approach. And it's, you know, it's a non-inferiority trial, so it makes both approaches valid. That's a wrap for the March edition of Heart Sounds. I know, I know, there's much more I could have included from ACC, as my own Apple Watch is currently reminding me. Just kidding, I don't have an Apple Watch. And of course, I didn't get anything from CRT for you here, which was a great meeting this year. I would urge you keener conference types to head to tctmd.com, navigate to the Conference tab, and find all of our meeting hubs. Depending on the meeting, you'll find stories, slides, videos, and more. April brings us a bit of a pause in the meeting coverage space, although Yael Maxwell will once again be at the CRF Fellows course. Fellows connect with Yael to see how you can get involved with this important section of TCTMD. Drop me a line if you've got comments on the show, or if you have story tips or research news you think we should know about. Find me on Twitter as ShellyWood2, or via my bio on tctmd.com. Thanks for listening. 